hi, everybody. It's Kevin Stevenson, and you've joined me on I Don't Care with me, Kevin Stevenson. Uh, appreciate you joining today. We've got uh, a really interesting couple of guests today. I know every now and then I'll throw a throw a curveball at you and uh, and add a second guest. So today I have uh, two folks from Columbia Heart Source. I have Susan Schnell, who is the director of operations and Dr. Paul Kurlansky, who's the Director of Research, Recruitment, and Continuous Quality Improvement. So Susan and Dr. Kurlansky, welcome to I Don't Care. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you joining me today. And first off, I'd like to, to have my followers know a little bit about you. So uh, Dr. Kurlansky, would you mind telling us a little bit about Columbia Heart Source? Sure. Um... Columbia Heart Source is really uh, an outgrowth project of the divisions of cardiology and cardiac surgery at Columbia University. Uh, we've been at this for over two decades now, and it started as a uh, quality improvement initiative for a heart surgery program in upstate New York, and it sort of morphed and flourished into a program where we work with outside institutions to help them in some way improve their uh, delivery of heart, you know, cardiac services. Uh, some, and what we do uh, varies tremendously depending upon the needs of the institution that we work with. Uh, we are not uh, we're not prescriptive. It's in the sense that we don't have a set uh, regimen of things that we uh, that we uh, demand or uh, expect from every site, but rather we work with each individual site to try to understand what their culture is, what their needs are, and how we can help to work with them to help them improve their uh, cardiac service line. Okay. Now, how long has this been occurring? So, like I said, this uh, this began actually uh, a little over twenty years ago, um, and uh, it wasn't really uh, it wasn't really hard source. It was just sort of a uh, there was a program in upstate New York that was in a lot of trouble. New York State has uh, a certificate of need state and uh, the, the uh, compulsory requirement to participate in a, a database which analyzes outcomes and results. And there was a um, program that was more than two standard deviations from the mean, i.e. was had bad results. <laughs> Put in simple terms, had bad results, and we could trust that the results really were uh, uh, very concerning for the state. And so uh, Columbia was actually involved with the state in terms of the planning of this whole program. So they agreed to take ownership or not ownership, but oversight of the site. And we work with the site to help them uh, recruit new surgeons and turn the program around. And uh, really, uh, within a very short period of time, we're able to markedly improve their, uh, their surgical outcomes. And there was then another program in New Jersey with similar problems that we helped. And then it became clear to us that this was a, there was an unmet need, if you will, uh, out there in the community. And so we began the what ultimately uh, morphed into heart source. And uh, as we got more involved with programs, we realized that, uh, you know, in, in the modern era, you can't detach cardiac surgery from cardiology. And so we engaged our cardiology fellows and fortunately our, our cardiology partners. And fortunately, you know, at Columbia, the 
the culture is such that cardiology and cardiac surgery work very closely together rather than competing with each other. And so it was a natural progression to uh, develop a combined product, uh, if you will, that we uh, now can offer uh, to sites. We function sort of like a portal, if you will, into um, into the Columbia University Medical Center and then used uh, whatever resources are necessary to try to help the institution that we're working with. That's tremendous. I mean, I, you know, uh, being at a hospital has a pretty viable uh, and vibrant cardiac program as, as I do. You know, it's always nice to have a, other resources to be able to tap into, you know, across the country. We do that within our health system. But, but you know, I'm always looking for, for tips and, uh, from, from whomever I can run across. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about cardiac quality. You know, what really drives that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And um, I think the best way to, uh, to answer that is an example, if you will. Um, you know, sometimes uh, it's very important to study your failures, and sometimes it's very important to study your successes. Uh, you know, if you want to succeed, <laughs> see what succeeded and try to figure out what, what it was. So uh, this is just, a, you know, a short vignette of something that actually happened in, in our own institution. Uh, you know, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons has various benchmarks uh, for uh, quality. And um, I was presenting our own institutional STS data uh, to the cardiac surgical group. And even though we had a very nice, you know, less than expected uh, mortality, uh, which was a very favorable metric, we had a problem with uh, prolonged ventilation being on the uh, ventilator for uh, more than it was expected postoperatively. And uh, so the uh, chairman of the division really, uh, you know, was, was sort of stunned by this and said, you know, that this is really uh, very problematic. There's no reason that if, if they can do better in other places, why we can't, we can't do better. And this is, uh, you know, this is a real issue. It's not fun to be connected to a breathing machine if you don't need to be. It's life-saving if you need to be, but if you don't need to be, it's, it's really potentially very traumatic. So um, uh, he engaged uh, the, the nursing staff, the anesthesia staff, the intensive care staff, uh, and we looked at it very thoroughly. They developed new protocols and uh, and worked on it. Uh, and in meantime, we kept feeding data back to them on a monthly basis. Um, and over the course of, of several months, we were able to turn around. We were able to drop the median uh, ventilation time in about half uh, and really bring the, the metric from much greater than expected to much less than expected ventilation time. So what are the elements, though? The reason why I bring this up is not to toot our horn, but to, to answer your question, there are certain key elements here. One is we had a metric that everybody could believe. This was something that was professionally developed uh, and made clinical sense. And so everybody on the ground bought into it. There wasn't any question of like, well, that's not important. We had leadership and we had leadership from a physician whom everybody respected, the chairman of the division of the adult cardiac division, also the busiest surgeon on the service. So nobody, it's not, a, it's not like somebody's coming into from the outside and saying, well, you got to fix this or this is a problem. This is, some, this is a physician who had leadership. And then maybe the most important thing is there was an institutional culture of quality. 
nobody wanted to be bad. <laughs> everybody wanted to, you know, just put it bluntly, everybody wanted to be good. You know, we're Colombian, we're, we think we're the best, you know, and, but but we got to be the best. And so, you know, to, to, to talk the talk, we got to walk the walk. So what's going on here? And so everybody buckled down and, and figured out at, at their level how they could contribute and make it happen. And then data came back to them to to feed the process. So yes, there are there are all sorts of tools out there, Six Sigma and everything else. All those tools are wonderful, but they don't drive quality. What really drives quality is leadership and culture. And you know, it, it all of the all of the programs, all of the regimens, all of those things, they're tools that help you. You know, I mean, but uh, I, I can give you a Ferrari to go to the supermarket, but if you don't want to go to the supermarket, it ain't going to help you. <laughs> you know, and so uh, that's really, you know, those I think are the key elements that really drive quality. And once you have those, you can work with somebody to, you know, that's when, you know, okay, looking at different protocols that have been tried in different places and all those sorts of things. That's when those things can be productive and those things can be helpful. But you really need you need uh, metrics that people believe in that make clinical sense, and you need leadership, and you need you know real leadership that uh, you know one of one of the most common things you see is that sometimes the quality department and the clinical department are different departments in the hospital. The thing that will really uh, drive things is if the leadership is. Uh, you know, if, if, if there's a metric that people believe in that makes clinical sense and there's a leader who has credibility, if you have if you have somebody from the quality department coming in and, you know, it, it, we see this all the time. The hospital engages in, a, in a, a registry, the STS, the National, the American College of Cardiology, whatever. And then they the data goes to the quality department and the quality department looks at it and maybe they don't even talk to the clinicians. Or maybe they have a meeting and the clinicians don't show up. <laughs> they present the data or, or they show or the physicians that show up are not the busy ones because the busy ones don't have time for these stupid meetings anyway. And so they don't show up and then, you know, and, and, and on and on. And so nothing happens. And they it keeps, you know, the hospital keeps spending the money on this and the quality. You can't have that. The leadership has to come from the, the, the clinical leadership. They they need the support of the quality department and they need that information and they need the you know that communication, but uh, and they need that feedback. But the leadership has to come from the from the clinical leadership who everybody buys into and everybody has faith in it and and who can mobilize the resources to really bring about change. Yeah, and and I totally agree. I love the fact you know everything starts with data, and but. Yeah, you were talking about having that that clinical leadership, the physician that everybody respects. Totally agree with that. But I've I've seen some cases where yeah, you know, physicians, even though the data is presented, you know, there's there's always a, a lot of pushback. Now, do you see that as well? I see both so your hands. We call this the the Kubler Ross phenomena. You know, <laughs> Elizabeth Kubler Ross had like you know the five. Uh, <laughs> Right. Five stages of mourning, you know. With, exactly. Uh, and, and the first step is always, you know, well, it's not true. <laughs> You're right. Absolutely. 
And, 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 you know, and then the next step is, yeah, but my cases are, are the worst, you know, my cases are worse than everybody else's. And, and so you can, you can work through that. Um, fortunately, um, and we do work through that and we work with sites very carefully with that because, um, you know, the, the, although they're not perfect, the Society of Thoracic Surgeon, the American College of Cardiology, um, have data collection forms. The data, is, the data is the data, and they have risk adjustment models, which are in the public domain. They're published. Their methodology is published, and they're solid. They're not perfect, they're, but they're solid. And uh, and so, if you don't believe it, we'll, we'll work. We'll sit with you, and we'll go through it. And not only that, we uh, very frequently we will audit sites uh, because you know when we come to a site and we see terrible results. We don't know that they're really that bad either, right? You know, it's a little bit stunning. So the first thing we want to do is, is do we believe that? And so we'll actually uh, help. We'll do independent audits of the of the medical records and see what we come up with. And unfortunately, it has been our experience that more often than not, the data is correct. <laughs> and the, and, the, and the, the hospital has actually done an excellent job of, of collecting the data. But you need to, you know, you need to entertain every step in the process and go through it with the clinicians so that they understand the data, so that they believe the data, which means you need to understand the data. You know, fortunately, uh, you know, Sue's been very involved with the American College of Cardiology. I sit on the Quality Measurement Task Force for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. So we're involved at the origins, if you will, of the process. Um, I don't want to take responsibility for all those things that they do because I don't always agree with them. But you know, I'm, I'm frequently on that side of things. I'm frequently a voice in the wilderness. But the uh, but the point is that uh, you know, if the people presenting the data don't understand the data themselves, forget it. <laughs> you know, oh, you're exactly right. You know, and and here at my hospital, we had we had a, a leadership change in cardiovascular in our cardiovascular program a couple of years ago. We went from you know, kind of a, 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 I hate to say this, a bit of a caretaker model, which had worked, served as well for years. But we were moving more into the into the, the data reporting and, and really focusing on that. And so it was a bit of an adjustment because it really, the data hadn't been presented as frequently as we, uh, we now do that. And so it took a little bit of an adjustment for our physicians. You know, we brought in a great physician leader who, as you said, had that respect of his peers and, you know, would go through that data before we had our meetings with the rest of the, of the service line. And that worked really well. You know, and, and so now, two years later, uh, you know, everybody expects data. They're proud of the progress that's being made. They also, now they come to us and identify, hey, we, we need to work on this. We're like, oh, exactly. You know, and so it's, you know, we are functioning as was intended to function whenever we introduce this concept. So, you know, that's, I'm and, glad and we're on the right track. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely on the right track. And, and you know, also it's, it's, um, it's important to understand sometimes the limitations of the data. So, for example, uh, you know, in, in my world, in the cardiac surgical world, the Society of Thoracic Surgeon has these very sophisticated, well-developed risk models, but and they're for the seven most commonly performed operations of cardiac surgery. But that nationally is only about 80% of what people do. But then depending upon with whom you're working, it may be 
you know, very variable. There are some sites where that represents 95% of what they do. So it's very telling. In our own institution, uh, where we do a lot of complex valve work, aortic work, transplant, LVAD, all this sort of stuff, it only represents about 55% of what we do. So it's very important. It's very helpful. But also, you know, being honest about the limitations of the data also will help to uh, improve your credibility, if you will. Uh, so, it, you know, we have to acknowledge the metrics that don't make sense. And then we use our ability to communicate with the ACC and STS to potentially make changes to some of the metrics that they're collecting. Um, because, you know, I spent 40 minutes on the phone with a physician today about a case that they wanted to do and a patient needed treatment. And the crux of the conversation was, well, what, how can we treat this patient without getting dinged? And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's disheartening in a way that that's, you know, it's, it comes up, but at the same time, um, some of the definitions that would have dinged this, this case. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, now in our new iteration of, of data reporting, we're running into that too. And, and, you know, we don't have the volumes that you have. And so, you know, one bad outcome for us is is incredibly impactful. And so, you know, we're we're still just telling our our surgeons, look, if you feel that that the patient needs that surgery, it's your clinical judgment. You know, if we're going to take a ding, we're going to take a ding. But it's it's a thir- it's totally up to you. So, well, hey, let's let's shift gears a little bit. I, you know, I love talking about quality, but you know, there's other stuff we can talk about. Okay, Sue, this goes to you because Dr. Kurlansky would would have a probably maybe a, a little bit different take on this. You know, what are the challenges of physician alignment? My gosh, that you know, that's something that you know we we think we've done a pretty good job of uh, here in Central Texas. I can't imagine some of the challenges that you face in a much larger market. So, you know, it's really the the basis, you know, you, you don't want to say this directly, but the basis of gaining, of you know, having physician alignment that works well for the institution, for the practices, is you have to have, you know, a compensation model that doesn't create the competitive shark kind of, you know, mentality. And that actually, it's not just with physicians. Um, it can be that the institution hasn't been thoughtful about the way they measure nurse practitioner productivity. And then you have nurse practitioners who are supposed to be supporting their physician colleagues and um, and they're actually competing for RVUs. And, and you know, when when what if it's not financial and a and a smart strategy on the compensation model it's having a vision that aligns with the you know that the physicians hear and a buy in on um because if you have multiple you know if you're in an institution that still has multiple private practitioners that you know view a hospital as well we're bringing you business you need to take care of us because we can pack our business up and go somewhere else, you know, it, it can be very challenging. Yeah, I think, it can how, be very uh, challenging. Go ahead, Dr. Kulansky. I'll just say this, this, is, this is probably one of the one or two major issues that we run into that hospitals struggle with. Um, and, you know, there are many, many components to it. You know, 
whether or not physicians are employed or not employed, as you alluded to, um, what is the role of advanced practice practitioners, et cetera. I think the way, I think Sue really hit it, though, is to develop a vision. Now, what what does it mean by that? Because it sounds a little fuzzy, but uh, you want to try to align people, right? So it's got to be win-win. It's got it's to be something that the physicians can buy into. It's got to be good for the hospital, et cetera. And so when you think about developing programs, not practices, but programs, we want to be excellent in coronary artery disease. And that, if you do it that way, not in cabbage surgery, not in PC, in coronary artery disease, that already pulls different parts of your medical staff together. But now, how do we build a program that will attract patients to our center in a real way? I mean, you know, it's got to be good, right? <laughs> so so now that's now that's starting to align the physicians with the hospital because it's good for the hospital and good for the physicians. Now you start thinking about, well, what is going to build that sort of programmatic success? So that's when the compensation issues come in. So if you are making a uh, a pure RVU-based system uh, on one extreme, let's say, and everybody's in competition with each other, and it becomes more important to them, my RVUs become more important to me than the success of the program. However, if their compensation is tied to the success of the program, now it becomes more important to me that the program succeeds than I necessarily do this case or do that case or, you know. And so that is, that's sort of the construct. Obviously the details have to to go by what will work in the given situation, but that's the construct that tends to, no, you have to create a, a framework or a construct or a vision, however you want to put it, puts everybody on the same page. And the and the thing that usually will resonate is is developing program ex, programs of excellence and caring you know providing care for your patients like that's 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 the shared vision serving your community providing care for your patients and that is done by creating these aligned these programs. You know we we had a, we had a we had a, a site where. Uh, it was it was kind of crazy coming from New York where everybody, you know, works, you know, 90 hours a day. But uh, where where physicians, you know, didn't want to work and, and they were backlogged and they were complaining that the administration was just money grabbing because, you know, they they weren't being efficient and stuff like that. And we, and we said to them, you have a thousand people waiting to be seen as doctors. How do you how do you call this a good program? How do you consider yourself good doctors that you're serving your community? And all of a sudden, the conversation changed. So it's it's finding it's finding that core that will put everybody sort of on the same page. That is, I think, the key. There are always bumps and there are always you know things, but I think that's the framework where you can start working on alignment. I know for us, what, what we did about oh, two and a half years ago, and, and we here in town, a much smaller community, we have two independent cardiology groups in town. And so we put together a co-management agreement with, with both groups. Uh, they created a PLLC and uh, that 
you know, the first year was we were we were feeling each other out, seeing how this was going to go. Now that we're into year three, it's tremendous. We've seen great strides in the program. You know, the quality has has been enhanced, uh, and so it, it's worked incredibly well. A lot of people were a little skeptical about it, but we said, you know, let's bring these groups together, and, and it's worked well for us. So, so. Sue, you kind of led me into my last, my next question about APPs. You know, there's a lot of different ideas about, you know, how to utilize APPs. Do we have enough? Do we have too many? You know, what have y'all found in some of your uh, uh, agreement or arrangements? So um, the the utilization varies uh, like anything else. And the, the sites that are successful have figured out what works for them because it's not always the same. I would like to say that all advanced providers should be autonomous, working to the top of their license, which is what they should be doing. But sometimes in certain subspecialties, the role is defined a little bit differently. So I think that it is um, when you are thinking about expanding or bringing on advanced practice providers, as either a hospital or a practice group employing. Again, you have to make sure that you've thought about how they're going to be viewed in compensation models. Because for example, at Columbia, we have a fully nurse practitioner run CCU. So we have two CCUs in the institution and one is fully run. Um, the attendings come in round for an hour in the morning or two hours, depending how long it takes. But they are fully, the patients are fully managed. These may be ECMO patients, MI patients, you know, very sick critical care patients. Um, but they're part of a program. It's not like they put in a bunch of lines or they, you know, they're going to get checked off for billing for procedures. Their salaries are somewhat known and rolled into the programmatic costs, and no one's like micromanaging or measuring them for productivity. Um, that would might not work in a practice setting. If you have a nurse practitioner seeing 22 patients and another nurse practitioner seeing four, just like any other professional, they have to be held to a standard um, and and actually, you know, be accountable for for their practice. Um, unfortunately, I think what we see in many institutions is in the intensive care units. Um, we have worked with sites that are very advanced in the, the patients they treat, and they were understaffed by 11 FTEs in their critical care areas. Um, and it's just from the sheer grit of their current staff and dedication that there aren't major complications. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you really have to look at what the needs are and what specialty you're talking about, and then develop your your whole your cadre of advanced practice providers. It's it's so really you know it's something very important there that because if if their if, if the major if their major concern is uh, is billing right <laughs> then it's, it's going to become very disruptive because it's going to you know, is potentially going to put them in competition with the physicians and this, that, and the other. And um, and the, really, you have to figure out what is the most effective way to run the program and then figure out the billing later, <laughs> you know, because, you know, because 
you know, maybe the, maybe they're just salaried as part of the the, the profit and loss of the program, um, and you know, it, it, but the uh, and so that the what their what their salary is is actually less than what they specifically bill for, but it's actually accounts for their contribution to the overall success of the program. And I, I think too many uh, administrations are short sighted when it comes to that, and I think that they. In the long run, they they've shot themselves in the foot uh, because they are not either um, taking on, you know, impact outcomes are impacted. We know the literature supports across the board, nurse practitioner run um, heart failure, chronic disease management. Even we've had sites who do not have dedicated structural heart teams and patients after invasive TAVR or mitral clip are being managed by hospitalists with the cardiology as consultants. We've seen dedicated structural advanced practice providers put on that service and in after a quarter seeing data improve. So and, and you see you, know, you also see to this, excuse me, you also see this on the outpatient side. You know, in other words, you can effectively expand your practice enormously if you use your APPs. Don't use them as secretaries. You know, <laughs> hire secretaries to be secretaries, you know. <laughs> you know, and 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 don't hire them to be, you know, lab techs or clinical techs, you know, to just to take blood pressure. Hire them to help you run and build your practice. See patients and, you know, and, and have their patients, et cetera. And you can expand your practice tr- dramatically if you do it effectively. Sure. Okay. My last question is, you know, I'm sure you see programs of all sizes and some may be in smaller markets. You know, what about cardiac anesthesia? <laughs> what happens if you're, oh, oh, good. I've hit on another hot button. Uh, you know, what about, what about cardiac anesthesia in, in those smaller markets where, you're not going to have cardiac anesthesia. So what happens then? I'm letting Paul speak to this because we, uh, I, it, first of all, it boggled me. I know I always thought everyone had cardiac anesthesia because my background is primarily in two institutions over 25 years that had cardiac in, anesthesia. So it, it is a problem. And um, I'll tell you, there's another dimension to the problem, which is financial. Um, you know, back in the dark ages, when I went into when I went into practice after training, I'm not going to tell you how many years ago this was, but the anesthesiologists were billing much in excess, almost twice as much as what I was billing for a case. Um, in the ensuing decade, things changed radically, and uh, the unfortunately, the practice. From an anesthesia point of view, the practice of cardiac anesthesia is completely financially incompatible with survival. Um, they get no much more for doing, a, uh, you know, a five-hour high-risk complex cardiac case as they do for doing a, you know, a, a knee exploration for forty-five minutes. So if you're, you know, it doesn't take a financial genius to say, you know, I can do five orthopedic cases and get five times as much money <laughs> with without the risk and the headache and the training to do so. Unfortunately, this becomes an expense of the, of the program to try to support that. Uh, because there's no way that, you know, either the, either the group contract with the hospital or the hospital, however it gets worked out, it, it, there is no way that in and of itself it can be financially viable. 
And so it, ha- it, it needs support from the, you know, the margin of the hospital for cardiac surgery or the contract that anesthesia has to cover everything and they make money here and they lose money here, but it's part of their contract. However, that gets worked out, but it has to be acknowledged uh, and discussed how, how that problem. So that's problem number one. Then the problem number two is where do you find them, right? In other words, it's not, it's not so easy. Uh, and, uh, and it's, it is, it can be challenging for a small program. The goal should be to try to get it. Uh, even if you have one or two, just one or two guys, uh, guys, gals, whatever, one or two people, um, because it, uh, it helps your program. It helps your program enormously. And even if you're doing only 150 hearts or, you know, something like that, um, to have, at least one cardiac trained anesthesiologist uh, has a major impact. There is there is good data now that uh, the use of intraoperative transesophageal echocardiography um, does improve outcomes, and so and, that, and not just for mitral valve repair or, my, or valvular cases for coronary artery bypass. And, and uh, you, without getting into details, you can actually, sometimes the anesthesiologist look, looking at the echo can see more than the surgeon looking at the operative field about what's going on with the heart. And uh, so it it, uh, it actual, and then what to do with that, how to access that information, you're having the skill set, how to access that information, getting good echoes that are meaningful, and then what to do with that information really requires a, a level of skill and expertise. Um, we have been involved with programs that, that don't have that, and they uh, – it's it's a problem because sometimes they try to schedule around. Well, if I'm getting this guy, you know, then I'm not going to do that case today. I'm going to wait until this guy comes around, you know, and, and stuff like that. But it uh, it comes back to bite you. So it it is uh, uh, it's a challenge. Um, and you know, you can you can try. Uh, sometimes you can try some of these. Um, Companies, anesthesia companies, but you have to be a little bit careful about that too, because sometimes they promise more than they deliver, and sometimes they um, they disrupt your whole uh, anesthesia team, you know, in, in terms of uh, compensation and this, that, and the other. So, uh, you know, the best thing to do is if, uh, if somehow you can uh, make a sweet spot for a couple of people, uh, you know, who would might be willing to settle down and. And your nice, you know, <laughs> your nice community, and have a nice life. To uh, uh, that would really be the best thing. But there's there is not a simple solution. But I think that the key is to understand the the challenges. And I would, and I would say, um, I would think about not necessarily looking at market size or location, but the case complexity. So, barring the more recent, you know, data that you were citing, Paul, about improved outcomes with cabbage that if you are a smaller program, but you're doing complex cases or low EF cases or, you know, mitral repairs, mini mitral repairs, then you have, you have to have an administration willing to see that, although we're a smaller market, we have a very diverse portfolio of cases and we need this added support. Um, in an institution where, you know, they're not even doing a lot of valve cabbages or re-ops, um, you know, maybe that's where you don't necessarily have the leg to stand on to push for it. But, you know, you, you may not. Uh, so the thing is, depending upon your, your situation, uh, you may not have the luxury. Of, you know, some cases you can you can send out, you know, like uh, an elective mitral repair. You know, you can, 
that that patient's not going to die. You can send that patient to, to somewhere. Uh, somebody comes in with unstable angina and severe triple vessel disease and, and they went into failure, you, you've got to take care of that patient. And that's and that's a that's a high risk situation. So uh, you don't you don't always have the luxury, if you will. You know, even even if you had the desire, <laughs> to, 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 you, you may not have the opportunity to to send those patients out. So to, to figure out the best way to take care of them, for sure, uh, you know, and, and cardiac anesthesia can certainly help. And you know, uh, nowadays, uh, you know, at the other end, um, sometimes uh, you know, patients. Uh, need mechanical circulatory support. And certainly a small institution may not be have the bandwidth to, to have an ECMO program, but they, they might have the bandwidth to put in an impella and then transfer the patient to someplace uh, where they can get that level of care. But, but even all the steps that are needed to get that patient to that situation require the skill of cardiac surgery and cardiac anesthesia on a, on a level that is uh, compatible with sick patients. Okay. Well, great. Well, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. So, Sue, if, if some of my listeners are interested in contacting you about, uh, about talking to you further, how would they do that? So the best way is actually my email address. And if you want to, I don't know how you share that information with listeners, but if they wanted to write down SJS2172 at Columbia. Uh, at cuimc.columbia.edu, or just Google Columbia Heart Source. Okay, that sounds great. Well, it's been a pleasure. Sue Schnell, Dr. Paul Kurlansky, thanks so much for joining me today on I Don't Care. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I always like to talk about cardiology and cardiovascular, so uh, it's been great for me as well. So listeners and and viewers hope you've enjoyed today's uh episode and we'll see you next week thanks so much thank you so much kevin